I suppose that all of us have said or have heard others say at one time or another, be careful what you ask for. I suspect no story in Holy Scripture better illustrates that familiar warning than this request of the elders of Israel for a king. This summer and beginning today, the sermons preached will take up major events in the saga of the people of Israel's experience of monarchy. First under King Saul, then under King David, and finally under King Solomon. The twists and turns of the story will challenge we who preach and you who hear. They will challenge us to wholeheartedly embrace a deeper and a more resilient faith in the risen Jesus as our King. Well, we're all very much aware that we are in election season. It's upon us. And I thought it would be timely for us to think about a persistent, a prevalent political temptation at the heart of this story that all Christians must avoid like a dread disease. Please don't worry. The temptation I have in mind is not about the preacher being tempted to extol the virtues of any particular political party or their policies. God forbid. No. The temptation I have in mind is much more subtle and pervasive than that. It is the very prevalent temptation in our society to confuse the great good of sound political and spiritual authority with the great evil of political and spiritual authoritarianism. But in order for us to have a rich context for understanding this ancient and persistent political temptation, let us return to our text from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Our story begins with the elders of Israel coming to the prophet Samuel with a complaint. You're getting up there in age, Samuel, they said, and your two sons that you made judges over us, they do not reverence and obey Yahweh as you do. They are avaricious. They pervert justice by taking bribes. And we've had enough of it. We demand that you appoint a king to govern us like all the nations of the earth. But their request displeases Samuel. We're not told directly why it displeased him. But I suspect we can rule out that it was because he wanted to defend the actions of his sons. What displeases Samuel is their wanting to be like the other nations. This amounted to rejecting the covenant God had made with their father Abraham. They were to be a unique people, bound to God as their king. And through them, all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. They were never to be like other nations. Never. The Lord tells Samuel that they have not rejected him, but they have rejected me from being king over them. But the rest of what the Lord told Samuel must have absolutely astonished him. 
gobstopped him, something like that, flummoxed him. Go ahead, Samuel, the Lord says, grant them exactly what they want. If there is any text in the whole Bible that underscores the freedom God has granted to his creatures, those he has made in his own image, this is the one. Oh, but one other thing, Samuel. Solemnly warn them and show them the authoritarian ways of the king who shall reign over them. And what follows is as apt description of every totalitarian political order that has disgraced the earth from the reign of King Saul until Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. I want you to notice in what follows in the story, in the text, the number of times the word take is used, at least in the English translation. The king will take your sons for his army. He will take your daughters to help provision his army. Well, we might think that's not so different. I mean, after all, under Joshua and the judges, the men served as soldiers. But now we are told he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants. And worse, he will take a tenth of all you produce from what is left over of your grain and your vineyards and your flocks. And worse yet, he will take the young males and females who work for you, and they will work for him, along with the best of your cattle and your donkeys. And in the end, all of you will be his slaves. It is as if the Lord is saying to Samuel, Tell them that if they thought they had it bad under Egypt and in the, under the Pharaoh, they haven't seen anything yet. As Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot in our recent history demonstrates, there is no tyrant as authoritarian and unjust as a ruler who enslaves his own people. Samuel's warning to the Israelites about the abuse of kingly authority in mind, let us begin a brief exploration of the difficulty many in our culture have with distinguishing good authority from those that are perverse or the perversion of authority. From our very beginnings as a nation, we have been taught to be suspicious of the motives and the plans of those in authority. Establishing our political independence involved a rejection of the authority of the British monarch. And ever since, our irrepressible enthusiasm for equality and for individual liberty has had the inevitable consequence of making us all very leery of all authority, no matter how benign or even beneficial. One reason for rejecting authority was put with admirable clarity by a young woman interviewed recently on PBS. She said, and I quote, Those in authority expect obedience, and that is precisely what is wrong with all authority. Someone has to obey. She is not saying that every exercise of authority is wrong because obeying it inevitably wrongs or harms someone though she might have believed that too. No, 
She is saying that it is precisely the expected or required obedience that makes it wrong. She can only see it, apparently, as an affront to her deepest value, her autonomy, her individual freedom of judgment and action. Contrast her comments or complaint with these words of the French philosopher Yves Simon. I quote, The issue of authority has such a bad reputation that a philosopher or a philosopher preacher like me cannot discuss it without exposing himself to suspicion and malice. Yet authority, he writes, is present in all phases of our social life. Why is it that people mistrust so intensely a thing without which they cannot, in all evidence, live and act together? Well, perhaps you're not very open to anything a Frenchman has to say. So here are the opening lines of Eugene Kennedy and his wife Sarah Chow's book entitled Authority, the Most Misunderstood Idea in America. Americans do not distinguish authority, which is something good, from authoritarianism, which is something bad. The idea of authoritarianism has been so fused with that of authority that like the massive rust on the hulk of the Titanic, they seem to be inseparable in our imagination. Well, let's see if we can get some of that rust off. My trusty Webster's Dictionary gives this definition of authority. The power or right to give commands, enforce obedience, to take action, or to make final decisions. But I don't think the dictionary has got it right. Wow, he's challenging the dictionary. No, it's not the power or the right. It's the power and the right to give commands and enforce obedience. A mafia capo certainly has the power to, convey, to coerce others. Pay the money or I break your legs. But he has no right to do so. But a judge has both the power and the right to put him in prison for doing so. Authority in its commonest use is a morally and legally sanctioned use of power. It is not just any sort of coercing or manipulating of others. Well, this helps, but not enough. We need to remind ourselves of what it means to be authoritarian. Webster's again says this, it is believing in or enforcing unquestioned obedience to authority as that of a dictator. Perhaps the young woman I quoted earlier really wanted to say something like this. Everyone in authority is authoritarian. They expect unquestioned obedience to their authority. And that's precisely what is wrong with all authority. Someone has to give unquestioned obedience. And if this is what she intended to say, then she would have put clearly what many of us certainly feel. And it is just this sort of tyrannical, authoritarian king that Samuel, instructed by the true king, warns the people, will rule them. Well, this is all good, but we are still not at the heart of the matter. If we are to recover the essential meaning 
of genuine unauthoritarian authority, one that we can have no reason to think diminishes or denies our God-given freedom, then we need to uncover the root of our English word, authority. It comes from a Latin verb that means to create, to enlarge, to make something able to grow. The word author, which comes from it, of course, gets at this very well, because someone who authors a book creates something new, and we who read it are enlarged, and we are able to grow in our intellect, in our decision-making, as a result of being instructed. Genuine authority in human relationships is always a dynamic, life-giving, and nurturing power by which those in authority author what is good for those who are under their authority. Now, I admit this is often difficult to find in our current political leaders, but it is what we must look for in them in this election season. And it is what you should expect, too, from your priests and what children should expect from their parents. If parents are authorities to their children, and they are, then they must exercise their authority with the aim of enlarging and guiding and maturing the intellectual and emotional, the moral and the spiritual life of their children. Thoughtful parents, of course, know that they have no choice about being authorities and examples to their children. The issue is not whether you will strongly influence your children. The issue is what sort of moral and spiritual heritage are they receiving from you. And if pastors and priests are authorities to their parishioners, and they are, then they must live exemplary lives of obedience to all God has called them to be as leaders in his church. True authority is wonderfully described in the novel True Love by Patrick O'Brien. Stephen Maturon, the ship's surgeon, warns his longtime friend, Captain Jack Aubrey, that he would compromise and perhaps even destroy his crew's great respect for his authority if he severely punishes midshipman Oakes for hiding his girlfriend aboard ship. Every seaman aboard the True Love knew that when Captain Aubrey was himself a midshipman, he had not been so severely punished for exactly the same infraction of British naval rules. The prevalent feeling or tone of this community, Stephen reminds his friend, is far, far more democratic. Consensus is required. Your commission is neither here nor there. Your authority depends wholly upon their respect and esteem. Well, within the rules and customs of the Royal Navy in the Napoleonic era, a captain had absolute authority in his ship. Captain Aubrey was certainly in authority by virtue of his commission and with respect to the rigging, navigation, and gunnery of a 42-gun three-decker, he was an authority, second to none. But his true moral authority was not in the first instance grounded in his office as a captain, 
or even in his brilliant seamanship, though both of these were very important and greatly admired by the other officers and his crew. In the final analysis, his authority was grounded in his respectful, just, and generous treatment of his crew. For this, they have grown to esteem and even to revere him. So in coming to a close, we must return to where we began, but to a very different vision of what God, the only true king, is like. A different prophet, not Samuel, but Isaiah, gives us a dazzling vision of what this true and only king is like. How utterly different is the vision of God as king in Isaiah 6 to the description of the earthly king that this same Lord of heaven and earth gave to Samuel to speak to the people. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the trailing edge of his kingly robe filled the temple. Uzziah had been a good king until the later years when he became drunk with power and the prosperity that God had given him. He abused his authority as king, and he presumed to take on himself the authority of a priest and offer incense in the temple. And for this, God afflicted him with leprosy to the day of his death. It was in such dire circumstances that Isaiah had his vision of the true authority and majesty and glory of the king the people of God in Samuel's day had rejected. Isaiah hears the heavenly chorus of seraphim calling and singing to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They do not say that the heaven is full of his glory. That is taken for granted. They declare that the whole earth is full of his glory. Every mountain, every rock, Every flock of emperor penguins is resplendent with the majesty and glory of God. In Hebrew, when a word is repeated, it intensifies its meaning. So to say gold, gold would be to say, here is the purest of pure gold. So when they sing holy, 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 the seraphim are rejoicing in the stunning holiness of God. They are rejoicing in the sheer loveliness of his being. And when they go on to sing, the whole earth is full of his glory. The word glory carries with it the sense of weightiness, of the density of the life of God as the source and center of all things. The whole earth is filled with the luminous weightiness of God. So, my friends, my fellow believers and lovers of the Lord, the high king of heaven we worship exercises a loving authority over us. His rule over us is never oppressive, 
never authoritarian. His justice never trumps his love. He is always calling us to author new life and love in us. Honor all lawful authorities, but come, let us worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.